My mother was a woman of tremendous integrity. My mother was curious, sensitive, compassionate, honest, always there for us, unflappable, loyal, complicated. She is devoted, resilient, dazzling, giving, vivacious, extraordinary. It is the only memory I have of my mother actually exercising a really loving physicality towards me. And my head and, 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 and a few hairs can actually still feel that. Hello, and welcome to Our Mothers Ourselves, a weekly conversation about one extraordinary mother. I'm Katie Hafner, and I'm your host. This week, I'm doing a deep dive into this idea of how a mother expresses her love for her children, and how those children perceive that love. The writer Will Blythe is here to talk with me about his mother, Gloria, who loved her kids like crazy, but she was very shy, and her way of showing that love was different. I'll be talking to Will about how he knew, without any doubt at all, that his mother loved him. Will Blythe, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast to talk to me about your mom. Thank you, Katie. I'm glad to be here. I'm excited to do this uh, interview with you, partly because uh, when I had the idea to do Our Mothers Ourselves, it was going to be daughters. Then I thought, you know, men have mothers too. Apparently. (laughs) Apparently. (laughs) And it's an entirely different set of emotions and trajectories that men often have. Uh, when it comes to their relationships with their mothers. Uh, That's what I thought would be really interesting to explore with you. And uh, one of the things that I start most of the podcasts with is if you were to choose one word to describe your mother, what would that word be? Oh, that's tough. I mean, can I give two words? Because I I really think uh, my mother was gifted at what I'm going to call invisible love, which is to say that she was a very shy person and a very, I think, reticent person. And never in my entire life or in my siblings' lives, uh, I just talked to my brother, one of my brothers about this the other day. We don't recall her ever having said directly to us, I love you. And we don't recall her ever having come up to us and initiated a hug. So I I think that uh, I got to use those two words. Invisible um, love. Invisible love, yeah. Something that was somehow still perceptible, still, uh, we could still feel it, Mm -hmm. even though many of the things that are probably traditionally said, perhaps on this podcast, were not the nature of the relationship that we all had with my mother, which was still a very loving relationship. Let's, uh, I'd like to um, chart the, uh, the evolution of the, the invisible love. You know, what you're implying, at least what I'm taking from it, is that it, the love was invisible, but it was also perceptible. Yes. Um, and I guess what I'm wondering is whether it grew over time or whether her, her way of loving do you know what I'm asking? Yes. I think there was a great evolution, both both for me in my perception of my mother, 
in the way she loved me and my siblings, but also a great evolution uh, in my mother's life. Um, she lived to be 85, and she was basically uh, a first-generation American. And um, I think that she always felt like an immigrant in her life. I mean that in many ways, not just in regard to nationality. You know, she grew up in Springfield, Massachusetts, and her mother was an immigrant from Scotland, and her father came from a Lebanese family. And uh, But he and my grandmother divorced when my mother was an infant, so that my mother grew up living with her mother and brother at a time when she thought that divorce was considered shameful. So she, you know, later she went to, eventually she went to college at Mount Holyoke and she studied chemistry. Do you know why she gravitated to chemistry? Um, I think she was just good at it. She was really good at science and um, she was also really good at art, at drawing and at music. She was a great, terrific piano player. She played the accordion. And she sang. Really? Yeah, she she played the accordion. She also had a beautiful voice. But eventually, she ended up moving down south, and she became a laboratory technician for a doctor who moved from New Haven to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which is where I grew up and where she met my father. And I've always thought that, you know, as 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 the years have gone by, I've realized she really it took a lot of bravery, in my opinion, for a shy person back in the early fifties to travel by herself and start a new life for herself. You know, she she went to a region which she had absolutely no knowledge or experience of, well, you know, the American South back in the 50s. And, you know, when she first arrived, I remember her telling me how she she tried grits at the Carolina Inn. And to the shock of her brother, uh, who was, you know, an inveterate New Englander, she loved them. And uh, he could never understand that. So she gets to Chapel Hill by way of New Haven, is that right. what you said? Yeah. She worked with a doctor in New Haven, a guy named Dr. Welt, and he uh, went down to Chapel Hill to join up with the med school there. And he took her with him? And yes. And uh, so, um, and it was there actually in the cafeteria of what was then called the North Carolina Memorial Hospital that she met my father and uh, where he was a young doctor and... Um, he was a real Southern charmer. He was deeply in love with the state of North Carolina, and he always would be. And in his view, she was this exotic Yankee. Mm-hmm. Um, but he charmed her sufficiently uh, that they got married. And I was the first of an eventual four children. And in fact, my first memory, one of the first memories I have of my mother, actually, uh, is I was in my crib one night. So I had to have been very, very young. And I could hear her talking in the kitchen or the living room. And I was in a different room. And I stood up in the crib and I could see this really beautiful strip of light under the closed door to the to the kitchen. And it was like this ecstatic light, you know, that suggested joy and love on the other side of the door. And uh, I got very excited and I stood up in the crib and started calling out. I was eager for her to come into the room and haul me out of the crib and carry me into all that light and conversation. And then lo and behold, the door opened and I was thrilled. But into the room came not my mother, but my father, who stared really angrily at me and said, hush, was the first word I ever learned. So I sank back down into the mattress you know, of the crib and I was disconsolate and missing my mother very much. Finally fell asleep alone. What but a story. That's my very first memory. I was, it was like longing. I could hear her 
you know, in the other room. And I was, I saw this beautiful light and I was just longing, you know, to join her and my father, you know, in whatever they were up to. And, uh, my gosh, you know, it might've been your first experience of disappointment. Absolute ecstasy and hope. And then it was absolute disappointment and despair. And then I went to sleep and the next morning, everything was fine. Well, I want to, I want to drill down into that just a tiny bit because obviously as a, as a baby, something was set up in you to know that the light, to associate the light with your mother yes. and with love and yes. with comfort. Yes. And so, you know, as we sort of play with this idea of invisible love, uh, clearly there was something big that she gave you really early. Definitely something that came off of her uh, that was this very palpable love. And that was despite her being uh, a quiet and shy person. I do remember when I was around nine or 10, um, I remember standing in the kitchen with my mother and she began putting her fingers through my, what was then abundant hair. She was saying, and it's, this still astonishes me and my siblings, she said to me, someday some girl is going to love running her fingers through your hair. And I, at the time, I had no idea what that meant. But it is the only memory I have, you know, uh, of my mother actually exercising a really loving physicality towards me. And my head and, 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 and a few hairs can actually still feel that. You know, but there were things about her that she had a different way of saying, I love you. For instance, uh, every minor holiday on St. Patrick's Day, for instance, she would always put some green treat on all our chairs, me and my three siblings, uh, before we sat down for supper. And it might have been a pack of Wrigley's double mint gum, you know, or a little book with a green cover. It might have been a tiny little potted plant, but she would always do something like that. And, and for instance, when I was six, I fell in love with rock and roll. My mother, of course, was a classical music fan. But she would go to the local record store in Chapel Hill, which is called the Record Bar, and she would buy me rock records. And she had no idea who the doors were, for instance. But she went, I'll never forget, she went and purchased uh, Strange Days. <laughs> and she would let me listen to it on the family record player in the living room, despite my father's horror. There were just these different ways where she seemed, again, very attentive to us. She, li- she was a listener and she watched. And that is one of the ways which I have learned that is a profound expression of love. Um, but there was something else that we became very, uh, we became partners at, which was we loved, we developed a passion for North Carolina basketball in Chapel Hill. And she became, over time, as ardent a fan as I was. And um, when we watched games at home as a family, she tra- was transformed suddenly from the quiet, shy woman I've been mentioning into a woman who would leap off the sofa when a player hits some big shot. Or, you know, she would crunch her hands together and fist when she was nervous about, you know, a particular game. And she was so passionate about that. And I actually think it made my father a little jealous. Yeah, when, when I moved to New York, you know, as a, as a young guy, I would call home after a game and my father would answer the phone uh, sometimes, and he would immediately pass the phone to my mother and say, here's the coach. I wrote this book that's kind of a hybrid memoir, account of a basketball season and so on. And I was doing readings back in the days when 
publishing houses actually would send you out to do readings. And that my, down south, my mother would come to all of them. And I, I described her as such. Uh, she's kind of the hero of the book. She is, really? She was a, yes, she's the hero of the book. Um, it's really about her becoming this passionate fan and how much it meant to her. And so, you know, when she was at these readings, I would always point her out. And, uh, and people, some people had already read the book and they would applaud her. So she got a couple standing ovations and she was delighted. And again, we're talking about a person I had always thought was shy, suddenly, you know, bowing her head and, you know, expressing gratitude uh, through standing ovation. Is there a little bit of the book you could read to me? Uh, yes, sure. With her, that, uh, do you want to take a little bit to, um... I'd have to go get the book, but I can Sure, yeah. Go ahead and get it. Okay, Will went off to find a copy of his book about the Tar Heels. Read from it, because... Okay, so you've got the book. What, what's the title of the book again? <clears throat> the book is called <clears throat> To Hate Like This is to Be Happy Forever. A thoroughly obsessive, intermittently uh-huh. uplifting, <laughs> and occasionally unbiased account of the Duke-North Carolina basketball rivalry. And is there a um, a passage with her uh, jumping up and down at a target yes, game? Yes, let me find There's probably a few. Let me see. Okay, well, here's one. I think this is, yeah. All right. Tonight, we are watching Duke play Clemson. We are monitoring our adversary for cracks, structural defects. We want to know who mopes, who snaps under pressure, who misses. We are scholars of the slippery slope, the January weaknesses that portend doom and march. The point guard who can't shoot, the two guard who can't defend, the center who clanks free throws. The new year has arrived, but when it comes to hatred, the beast is already in midseason form. He lives not just in me his favorite host, but in my mother and my sister. How can anyone stand to look at him, my mother asked, staring at the Duke coach Mike Krzyzewski. It's a mystery to me, my sister says. My friend Nina Wallace can read lips, my mother says. She says you ought to see the kinds of things he says. The game is ugly, too. At one point, the commentator compares it to a root canal. The second half is more of the same. Turnovers, fouls, neither team shooting over 35%. Sit down, my mother instructs Mike Krzyzewski. Miss, I shout at Lee Melchioni. My mother appears to suppress a smile after I say, whip their sorry asses. She doesn't ordinarily like that kind of language, but there is a time and a place for everything. Anyway, I, there's more, but... That's great. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. Okay. So how, how old was she when uh, this took place? She would have been, uh, let's see, she would have been in her, yeah, she was 77. Mm-hmm. So no spring chicken. No, no. And it it was after your dad had yes. died. It was uh, mm-hmm. five years after my father died. So this gave her great joy. Yes. Being with you, watching a game that you were watching this on TV. Yes. Got it. So she totally got into yelling at the TV. Yes. Yeah, she would jump up. uh you know, and jump off the sofa. And uh, she would, uh, if if the game was going poorly, which it rarely did, but if it was, she actually was so upset, she'd go into the kitchen and just start washing dishes, even if they were already clean. And so those watching games together actually allowed all of us this view in, 
into a sort of improbably wild and passionate side in her. Because you loved that basketball team so much. Yes. Yeah, I think it was a way of actually sharing excitement, sharing pleasure. And that's another great uh, attribute of a gift that a parent can give you, you know, is Mm -hmm. to love something you love. Are your siblings, are you split girls and boys? Or um, I have uh, a sister and I have two brothers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she had three boys. That's right. And had she, do you think when she had boys, she knew how to raise boys? Um, <laughs> no, I think she was sort of learning as she went. And, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know, but she was, she was open to us playing sports but also, you know, to reading. I remember she had this deal with us, even as children, where I remember her telling me once when we were driving somewhere, she'd say, you know, we, we didn't, she said, if one thing I'll always buy you, if you want, is a book. That didn't mean that there was necessarily anything else that she would just buy, but about books, she had this generosity mm-hmm. where if you wanted to read something and you couldn't find it at the library, she'd buy it for you. She just felt books were this incredible other world that you could go into. And she was, in Mm -hmm. fact, a big reader her entire life. She would read these, you know, long biographies of like, you know, some princess or queen or she would read fiction. She just would read all sorts of books. And she didn't, again, say to us, you need to read. She was just an example. And I think that's one of the reasons I I fell in love with reading. Uh, One of the things that interests me in talking to sons is not just how a mother expresses love to a son, but how a mother comes to understand that her son has a tender heart. Well, you know, um, I'll tell you something that really, one of the great things that happened an evolution that I was originally mentioned to you about, not just my evolution, but my mother's, is that um, my father died unexpectedly, you know, in the year 2000, died of a heart attack. He, oh, and sorry. and he, he collapsed right in front of my mother. And um, But she tried to revive him right there on the floor uh, by mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And she remembered that the ambulance arrived late, and so my father was taken to the hospital uh, in a coma already, and he died in a coma eight days later. And that started a new relationship with my mother and me and with my siblings. We all began to call her every single day. And originally the conversations were just, you know, sort of, how are you doing? How are you feeling? And But the talks continued over the next 13 years until she died. And in that time, she and I became friends. Not just, you know, it wasn't just, it was no longer just a a mother and son, you know, it was, uh, we became friends. And, And so, you know, first off, I would, I somehow felt liberated to tell her about all the dimensions of my life, like various romantic catastrophes or intrigues, I would tell her. And she, as always, would listen without any apparent judgment. That's another important thing to say about my mother, is she never seemed to express judgment. She never, in fact, gave us advice. I don't remember her ever giving me any advice. She just listened. 
while the, the, her mere listening was a gift, the greater gift came as she began to confess to me some of her own uncertainties and disappointments and her fears and sorrows, which had never happened before. And I remember how every single December, at the anniversary of my father's death, she would tell me, you know, oftentimes crying on the phone, how she was anxious and depressed. And I mean, while there's, of course, sorrow in that, it was also a revelation, you know, that here was her inner life. She was actually expressing her inner life. And, um, and, and, and that was a gift. But I remember when I was four or five, I walked into my parents' bedroom one afternoon, and my mother was in there alone, lying on the bed, and she was looking very sad, and there may have even been tears in her eyes. And, uh, and I was young, but I could tell that something was wrong. So I said, I remember this, I said, what's wrong, Mama? And she said, nothing. And I knew that wasn't true. And I wanted at the time to make her feel better probably the first time, but not the last time, I wanted to try to be a parent to a parent. But now, you know, she would share different forms of unease with me. She told me about one time she drove her car by accident into a lamppost, and she told me how it embarrassed her. And how did it made she, her, what? it made her wonder whether she was too old to drive. Oh, so she was, it was when she was older? Yes. Mm. And, and just those conversations, uh, you know, we became collegial about our respective failures in life. But don't you think that that's pretty common where you become more of a friend with your parent than the child of your parent? That, well, for me, that was uh, just one of the greatest gifts ever. Was mm -hmm. Yes, I think that probably is the case, but that it happened. The evolution I'm talking about, she became more openly who she probably was inside all her life. But there was one other amazing thing that happened in those last years. Once she came to visit me in New York, and I was friends with this homeless guy who lived on my block, a guy named Cadillac. So we were walking around one day on the block, and there he was. So I introduced my mother to him. And at that time, Cadillac was probably in his 60s. Which part of New York? In Queens. Oh, uh-huh. And, uh, so, and my mother at that time was probably in her mid, mid to late 70s. And um, I introduced them, and Cadillac immediately saw something in my mother's eyes that made him feel as loved in a way that he had never felt loved before. And so right then and there, you know, at their first meeting, he asked her if she would adopt him. And without an instant of hesitation or contemplation, she simply said, yes, of course. So... They shook hands. I think they might have hugged, and Cadillac began to cry. And for the rest of her life, Cadillac called her Mother Blythe, and they had they would talk sometimes on the phone and see each other. and uh, And she stayed in his life until she died in 2013. And to and and now every year on her birthday, he sends me a card in her honor. And to me, that all speaks to something that I, I was trying to get at here, which is that there's something about love, and there was something about her love, that isn't just verbal, and it isn't just physical. And, you know, it's, it's that love can somehow be invisible and still be there and still be felt. And I think that, uh, you know, my mother is proof of that. Mm -hmm. It sounds like she had a really 
rich inner life. I think it was. And, um, and you know, there were times when I was young where I wondered about her inner life. Um, and, you know, there was another time where I remember I found drawings that she had done when I was a child that were, she had somehow, she never thought of herself as a great artist. I think she was, but she had hidden them in a, uh, in a linen closet. And I remember looking at those drawings and seeing again another aspect of her inner life, the inner life that I think you've sensed, um, which was this sort of exquisite sensibility and and uh, this just the the drawings themselves were very loving and um, gentle. What were they drawings? They were of? drawings of uh, us, her children. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, and you didn't know she had done that. I honestly didn't remember it until I found the drawings just sort of hidden away as if, because she was also a very modest person. She was not uh, in any way, shape, or form uh, an egotistical person. Do you think that her reservations about expressing love physically and verbally had anything to do with her parents? Yes, I do. I think... Uh, my grandmother, her mother was um, a, a kind person, but she was also not. A, she was also a very reticent and shy person, and so I don't think my. And I think her father, you know, had left her family when she was very young, and um, so she didn't get to spend nearly as much time with him. And I think that as a result. She didn't really have examples. She didn't grow up with strong examples of being open. You know, I think mm -hmm. that... And demonstrative, yeah. Demonstrative. I think that she grew up believing that uh, politeness was a virtue and that politeness meant that, you know, you listened, you didn't speak. But if you ran up to her as a little kid and hugged her, would she hug you back? Uh, probably. I don't remember actually you running don't. up and hugging her like that because I, I don't think we got that as an example. But uh, I know that later in life, she loved it when mm. I would uh, come into the house and hug her. And uh, and then when I would leave the house, say, in North Carolina to go back to New York, she loved being hugged and she would cry. And, that, and she would stand, you know, waving in the driveway, waving goodbye, crying. And did she ever say, I love you? Honestly, I was just asking my brother David that several days ago when I knew I was going to talk to you. We don't remember her having said that to us. It, it could be that later in life she, she may have said it again in response to our having said that to her. But it's one of the things I'm, I'm trying to say is that her inability or shyness to say those things directly didn't mean we didn't feel them. It's a kind of miraculous thing in some ways. Thank you so much. That was really a pleasure. Thank you, Katie. It was a, I enjoyed that very much. And that's it this week for Our Mothers Ourselves. Our theme song was composed and performed by Andrea Perry. Paula Mangin is our artist-in-residence. Elizabeth Kay is the show's producer. Our Mothers Ourselves is a production of Odredex Studios. This one's for you, Jeremy. I'm Katie Hafner, and I'm your host. Have a great week, everyone, and stay safe.